Hey there, Canada. I'm David Fitzgerald, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Coming at you from the acid trip of Revelation, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin and I am that seven-headed dragon your mom warned you about. Joining me as usual is the apocalyptic team that rides into the sunset of skepticism. On her white horse conquering history is Nancy. Oh, on a white horse in all this snow, you'll never see me. <laughs> <laughs> on his red horse, he declares war on superstition, Tyler. What the hell is that noise? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. On his bla- on her black horse, she's just sick of being uh, she's just sick of not being able to ride a real horse, Deb. Hey, that black is kind of slimming, don't you think? I'll have another cookie. <laughs> <laughs> guys, welcome back. I hope you guys had a great week. It was a snowy cold one, but it was a week for yeah, sure. For sure. Something uh, interesting going on in the weather around here. We at least got a winter now. <laughs> it is a winter wonderland. Woo-hoo. Guys, we've got a great show today. We'll be talking later on with our good friend David Fitzgerald about St. Paul. And that should be an interesting interview. I can't wait to hear Tyler and David go at it. This should be really cool. He's a a great guest. And I know Tyler can be in there with him toe-to-toe. It'll be great. I retroactively predict it goes well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A couple of chit-chat, a little chit-chat before we go in there. Guys, did you hear that P.I., Prince Edward Island, passed the basic income legislature? Yeah, I did. The question is, is it going to spread all through Canada? Well, apparently now they're the second province to do it. Ontario was the first. Um, it's uh, They're going to develop a pilot project. Uh, the motion was uh, um, carried by the Green Party leader, uh, which his name is uh, Peter Bevan Baker. And Ontario right now is proposing, they're, they're probably going to try to copy Ontario. Ontario is going to propose to give a $1,320 a month uh as income guarantee to everybody that's in Ontario, and that should be replacing welfare and disability programs. Which is great. I mean, it, it ought to be enough so that no one is evicted from their home exactly. or, or suffers from um, starvation because they can't afford food that doesn't come that that doesn't come from the dollar store. Yeah, well, and I'd like to point out that I've been on disability before. Um, obviously, I'm blind. I did it with a child as well. But even with a child, I was getting $1,200, which is less. Um, my, I have a roommate who's on welfare, and she gets a total of $600 for everything. You just can't make it without that. Mm-hmm. No way. So, And I mean, I think disability when you don't have a kid is like maybe $900 a month. So this is a drastic increase. Yeah, and especially especially in this region, the prices of uh, renting is really, really high, and it's actually hard to find a place to rent. I read, uh, like in Abbotsford, where we are right now, it's actually one of the hardest places to rent in the province in BC. Well, the good thing about it is that you can't age out of a basic That's right. income. That's right. And you can't get into a dispute as to whether or not you're on 
uh, you deserve disability. I think there's some really weird things that people have to go through. If Even if they lose a limb, it, they, they're up for review and they still yes. have to prove that they haven't grown another You're one. In a wheelchair all your life, you have to prove that you can't walk. And really? it's, degra- it's degrading. It, it is. It, it, it it's takes away you know, the, the fact that we're all humans and we're all equal. You have to prove that you're, you're something in order to get the money well it was easy for me but being blind obviously pretty simple but like you said you can see a lot of disabilities but there's a lot of mental disabilities yes, mo- that you can't see mm-hmm. so it's not easy to now see. there is a lot of financial aspect to this program that i have investigated to an exhausted amount um d- for how much it's going to cost and, and this and that and people argue about it all the time but what are we paying for you know the social workers who are doing all this interviewing and paperwork and the buildings and their exactly, utilities exactly. so if you you'll get rid of all that and and you literally have a, the push of a button and it's automatic not even the push of a button because it's directly deposited into people's accounts mm-hmm. or they get a check mailed to them or something well for Wednesdays might become a thing of the past. I'm actually feeling something really wonderful coming on as as far as the screenplay goes Tyler I mean the people that you just described the social workers the ones that are you know ultimately making the decision whether or not someone fits into the right category the right box and now their job is going away and they may actually find themselves trying to get by on that minimum minimum income each month well and right? people keep what saying a, it's going to cost change more. of play that is yeah people keep saying oh it's going to cost more okay but you're saving money on not having to pay for all this other crap not His to phone is ringing there. i know it's driving me uh. insane that's what i was talking about this morning, earlier in the show but also it also saves money on things like crime and homeless people are so expensive that giving them houses is actually cheaper than having them be homeless. That's right. Because of the right. crime costs and police. So you're saving money all over the place. Or the ripple effect of, you know, they're now unhealthy and have to seek out medical care. And they cost health care. Right. And they cost health care. So, but I want to see more details about this plan. I'm aware of all the experiments that have been done. And usually what they do is they give you, you know, $1,300, $1,320, whatever you said, a month. And then you're allowed to make a certain amount, like me being on disability. I'm with with a family. I'm allowed to make $1,000 a month, and then they take dollar for dollar after that. Mm -hmm. So they might have something similar to that. So once you start going up in tax brackets, you get less. Because realistically, you can't give everybody over the age of 18 $1,300 a month. You just can't afford it. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. But do we... Does somebody who's making $100,000 a year really need an extra $1,300 a month? Absolutely No. Not. So yeah. it's going to gradually become less and less and yeah. less. It's kind of like the um, negative income tax that Milton Friedman, who I hate, yes. proposed, but he was right about it, that we can't afford it if we give it to everybody. So it has to slowly decrease. That way you're not punishing people by saying, you know, if you get a job, we're going to just deduct it all off your check. But then, then you're you're not giving them any incentive to actually work. Yeah, and by cutting these welfare programs and the disability programs, you essentially are going to be funding a, g- a great chunk of it. And you know what? Even if they do raise our taxes to to for, to have this program running, I've got no problem with that. Well, I've got no problem with that. As long as they're not raising it on low income and lower middle yeah. class, as long as they're raising it on you know the the well, top it's, people. It's a safety net. You know, you're tax. not going to fall yeah. below, yeah. and it, it's also going to help in 
um, decriminalizing being poor. At this point, people yes. who are homeless, it costs more for people to be on the street <laughs> than it does to help them. This mm-hmm. is going to reduce the cost of policing, of, yes, and uh, ambulance service, and hospital, and, and all of the services, and the people who are benefiting from the poverty industry. Uh, or the misery industry, as some call it. Well, it. It's really going to change people's lives in a, in a very positive way. I hope it spreads way. to the rest of the country. Well, it's also yeah. better than minimum wage, because if you own a small business and you're paying your employees ten fifty an hour, and then law passes that you have to pay them an extra 3 or $4 an hour, you're, you're just going to have to charge more for your services or your products or, or whatever. So it's going to go up and then it just goes up and up and up and that's just stupid. Mm-hmm. So this basic income guarantee, if we can do it without driving up the price of co- the cost of living, because that's the objection that I hear from these people is if you give out a basic income, the cost of living is going to go up. But it's not because you're not driving up the price of and not products just that, and services. If these people actually have a bit of spare money, they will put it back into the economy as well. Well, this is why the even the if you just google the libertarian case for the basic income, they support it as well. And then you just kind of take the left-wing model and the right-wing model and they'll eventually kind of meet in the middle and that's where you'll get your plan. Mm-hmm. Well, the two provinces being sort of pilot programs will work out some of the bugs and a lot of oh, these yeah. things that the naysayers uh, are, are coming up with will prove to be myths and, and we'll Absolutely. have a better or society. It, it, it already has. On. They did it in, in Manitoba back in the 70s. and Yeah, there was a Medicine Hat, wasn't it? No, no. That, that's in Alberta. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Manitoba it was it was it's called the Mincombe Project. It's it was back in the seventies in northern Ontario, and they dispelled a whole bunch of myths. People didn't quit working, so. And, and at the same time, too, it's interesting because PI being the smallest province in the country will see the small scale effect, and Ontario being the largest population will see the full size uh, scale as well. So we'll have actually both. What's the, the population of PI? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's it's a tiny island. It can't be a whole lot. Wow, Saskatchewan's <laughs> like a million people. So yeah, well, it's, it's probably less than half. Anyway, speaking of money, did you guys hear that our ten dollar bill is about to change? It is. Indeed. Yes, they're actually going to put Viola Desmond on to be on the ten dollar bill. Woo-hoo! Now she's going to be the first Canadian woman to actually appear on our currency. Uh, she's been called the Canadian Rosa Park. She was from Nova Scotia, and her story was very similar to Rosa Parks. She went to a movie theater, and uh, this was in 1946, and she refused to give up her seat because she was in the she sat down in the prime section and she wasn't supposed to be. And she said, "Well, fine, I'll pay the extra charge." And she ended up being arrested and all that. Educate me. Was she uh, a minority of yes, oh, yeah. other she, than she, being she female? Was black. She was oh, black. she's black. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and she died unfortunately in 1965. But the uh, province of Nova Scotia pardoned her in 2010 for that transgression. While she was still alive. <laughs> no, no, she died in 65, oh, so she was okay. she was pardoned after uh, in 2010. Posthumously, eh? Yeah, posthumously. And she was one of uh, several women that were nominated to be on that, and she kind of won that lot of yes. And now we should be seeing this, I believe it might be 2017, 2018. So we'll have a new, it's, she's going to replace the uh, Johnny McDonald that's been on the $10 bill forever now. Inconceivable! And that's he, great. He looks like crap anyway. So that's, that's great. That acknowledges. Yes. It's, it, it's a beginning to acknowledge the diversity that's already, I that's predict already here. I that if it's going to take that long to actually make that change, that your $10 will actually be worth maybe $10 at that point. Might be in, worth $10 American? American, yeah. <laughs> because you know what we're going to be going through at that point in time. Oh, boy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's no women on American money, right? 
Oh, uh, the, there has been on coins. Yeah, like the, there was a Pocahontas coins at some well, point. Uh, Sacagawea, uh, whatever. Sacagawea. Uh, and there Susan was Susan B. Anthony's Susan Anthony, dollar right. okay. coin. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. My my bad. So I, it's I all right. We're we're a little bit quicker on that kind of thing with the women anyway. Well, we've had the queen for how long? Yeah, but mm. she's not a Canadian woman, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess. Yeah. So that's the thing. Be um, careful there, Kevin. You know, she's offered to take the states back. She might just she, come uh, your she, way she as well. A, she sent us a letter. Okay. <laughs> she sent us a letter. Yeah, you guys okay. are not doing this right. We're taking back the United States. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, no, I guess of a sadder note, I guess. Astronaut Glenn, uh, Glenn, John, Glenn. <laughs> John Glenn died at the age of 95. Um, he was the first American to orbit Earth. Not the first one in space, but the first one to orbit. Yeah, and uh, he went back to space at the age of 77. Also giving him the record for the oldest man in the space. I know. And he was a senator and, you know, he also ran for president. I guess he will be sorely missed. He will be. He will be. He, yeah. He, uh, He's had a, quite a life. He was uh, in, in, in an era of discovery. Yeah, he was a pilot. He'll go he, down as one of the giants. Yeah, he went yeah. two wars. I believe he went to was it World War II and yeah. uh, Korea War. He fought as a, as a pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interesting, interesting character. He, interesting. Never went, he never went to space. It was all filmed in one of those green backdrops. That's right, videos. that's right. It was all uh, on the... Uh, According to people on Facebook. So. <laughs> Capricorn One. Capricorn One. Uh, all right, my dear Nancy, you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Let's set you up. Here we go. And... This Day in History, which is a roundup of those events and people that altered and illuminated the days between December the 5th and December the 11th. Starting with December the 5th, it's, it, is, it was World Soil Day. So from the soil comes uh, all of, all of our, our produce, and it's a good, good thing to remember all the gardeners out there. Nancy's got the dirt on that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, also, on December the 5th, what do you think that women who served in the U.S. Armed Forces in World War II and carrier pigeons have in common? Delivering mail? (laughs) That's an interesting question, and I'm going to answer that question. (laughs) But I'm not going to do it really quick. I'm going to stretch it out a little bit because... This is a story that is so charming that... Suspense it, is killing me! Yeah, I know, the suspense is going to kill you, but you'll love it when I... Oh, they when both I played ping pong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you ruined the whole story. Okay, here we go anyway. Back in the 20s, a lovely young Jewish girl named Ida Rosenthal founded a brassiere company that she named Maidenform. Now, back in the 20s, if you remember, most women were flappers, and they, she didn't, uh, Ida didn't invent the bra, but women were wearing bras, but unfortunately, because the flapper look was flat-chested, they were wearing bras that, you know, kind, kind of, of squish everything. Yeah, squished them all in. Compressing. Yeah, and Ida what a thought... crime against humanity. Ida thought women should look more natural, oh, yeah. and so she redesigned the bra so that when women wore elegant clothes, they really looked good they showed off their endowments and she was the one that came up with brassieres that had cups 
and that was a huge deal in the time. Women, um, you know, were looking better, and her business really thrived. And it went up to the to the 40s, and it just kept building and building. And it was a great business. She was located in New York. See, so. this is why people listen to this show, so they can find out about boobs. It, that's right. So <laughs> I know, everybody's got them. Everybody. I mean, this was this was this is low tech, but it was tech. You know. All right. So World War II came along, and materials to make bras became very scarce because a lot of the um, the armed forces were taking over some of the factories in order to produce things for for the armed services. Yeah. Right. So because her bra materials sort of fit in naturally, um, some of the materials that she used, she uh, she began to use some of the materials to make parachutes. So part of her factories were turned over to making parachutes, or which for was really, very really, interesting. Really big chested women. Really, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay, so we're going to leave the parachutes and Ida and the maiden form bra for just a minute, and we're going to start talking about carrier pigeons. Carrier pigeons were used in World War II to send messages and to send film and to uh, send blood samples from hospitals. And the way the carrier pigeons worked were the, para the, the parachuters would take the, the carrier pigeons and put them inside of their, their vests, mm -hmm. and when they would land behind enemy lines or wherever they were going, they would release the, the carrier pigeons with whatever notes that they had about where they were or how the battles were going. But by stuffing these poor little pigeons, in their clothes, a lot of the pigeons weren't making it on landing oh. because they were either getting smothered or they were getting hurt. Crushed. Yeah, so the armed forces and the parachutes now had to come up with a way because uh, carrier, uh, carrier pigeons were really an important uh, form of communication, believe it or not, during, during World War II. Mm -hmm. And they would make it. They, you know, they could fly pretty fast and they could make it back. But they had to find a way to, to, to have the, the carrier pigeons be carried securely and safely so they could be released and, and make it back. So the armed forces began to think, hmm, Ida and Maiden Form are already doing parachutes. Maybe that material would also be good for carrying the pigeons. And the armed forces and Ida Rosenthal got together and they designed the pigeon bra. <laughs> they called it the pigeon breast, but believe me, it was a little pigeon bra. For little peepers? For, for little peepers. <laughs> it was. And the, the vest was made out of very porous material. It had a very tight woven fabric underneath so the pigeon's claws wouldn't damage the mesh. And the vest was shaped to the body of the pigeon, leaving their little heads and neck and wing tips and so forth exposed. And then the vest was attached to the outside of the paratrooper's jacket and he could actually put his hand over you know the eyes or so yeah, forth yeah, and yeah. and hold the the the, para, the, uh, the the pigeon in well um once the paratroopers hit the ground they'd release the pigeons and it was such a success um they tested it out and the the, the way that the the vests were made the little bras were made that in 1944 maiden form agreed to make 28,500 pigeon vests for the u.s government and they all had a little warning 
stamped inside of it. It said, this is so wonderful. Important, do not retain pigeon invest in excess of six hours. <laughs> so in the planes, getting the pigeons ready, they would take them out of the cages, put them in their little vests, and then when they you know, had the rip cords off, they would go. And so uh, the pigeons were so valuable that actually during the World War II, some of the pigeons got medals for heroic service in the way that they were able to fly. The unsung heroes of World War II, the pigeons. The unsung heroes, maiden form and pigeons were the unsung heroes of, and so maiden form went on and, and did this wonderful campaign of I dreamt I went swimming or I dreamt I went to the ball <laughs> in my maiden form, but they never they never had any advertising. <laughs> to, to, you know. What a wonderful <laughs> story. Isn't it a wonderful well, story? You're, you're talking about boobs and cruelty to animals, so Kevin, you need to throw a Pamela Anderson clip in here. Oh, what a way to go. <laughs> it works for me. <laughs> what was just said that Left of the Valley was not endorsed by PETA? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there were approximately 56,600 carrier pigeons that were actually trained for warm um, war missions. And then, of course, you know, they got other forms of communications. But now, just go ahead, try to think of a pigeon without a bra. You're not gonna <laughs> <laughs> next time Challenge you of the day. <laughs> next time you see a pigeon, you're going to picture him in that little... And you can actually go online and look up pigeons and bras, and you can see exactly how those little vests were, were, were uh, tied. You know the little they had little ties in the in the front they were cute little oh, cute laced vests. and everything laced up they were they actually were fashion for the birds that's right anyway moving on to december the 6th i hate to leave that story because i just was so enchanted by by the whole thing but here we go progress we move on december the 6th was the national day of remembrance and action on violence against women also known informally as White Ribbon Day, and that's a day that's commemorated in Canada each December the 6th, and it's the anniversary of the 1989 um, uh, Polytechnic School Massacre, mm. um, which uh, 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 Mark Lapine, Lapine yep. murdered 14 women and injured 10 others in the name of fighting feminism. In Quebec, right? In Quebec, yeah. Montreal. Yeah. Montreal yeah. And the commemoration date was established by uh, Parliament in 1991. December the 7th was per National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. In the This was a full week. You ask what happened during the week. It, it was, was a, a full week. It was a full historic and hysteric week, I guess. So December the 7th, uh, National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day in the U.S. December the 8th, um, it was Constitution Day in Ubekistan. And in 2013, the humanist community at Harvard was delighted to announce that the governor issued an official proclamation declaring Sunday, de December the 8th, as Humanist Community Day. So throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, it's uh, Humanist Community Day. And uh, there's that's a conjunction of um, a lot of things that go on at Harvard. And there are some other schools that have, that have adopted the Humanist Community Day as well. December the 10th is Human Rights Day and International Animal Rights Day. And uh, Nobel Prizes are also given out on that day. And um, 1901, the first Nobel Prize in Physics was uh, given to William Renchen for his discovery of x-rays. Um, and in 1903, Nobel Prize uh, Physics were given to Pierre and Marie Curie. 
1935, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry uh, to Marie Curie's daughter mm -hmm. um, and her husband, uh, Frederick Joliot, for the discovery of artificial uh, radioactivity. December the 11th, I love this day, National Tango Day in Buenos Ooh. Aires. Oh, man, we should put on a little tango music totally today yeah, to celebrate. Um, and that, dear listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre, though charming events and people and that pigeons. make up this day in history. Thank you so much, Nancy, for this yet another entertaining day in history. Now, this is usually the point where we say we'll be right back after these messages, but I'm not going to do this today because as soon as we come back from commercial, I want to go directly to David Fitzgerald. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to do... Oh, You're going to screw it up. Yep, that's right. Make you go all right, I've got an interesting story, and I want to hear what you guys think about this. Now, did you guys know this is this just came out actually? This came out uh, December eighth. The tale of a ninety-nine million-year-old dinosaur, including bones, soft tissue, and even feathers, has been found preserved in amber, according to a report published today in a, in a, in a journal called Current. And this is from the National Geographic. Which is a terrible source after 2015. I agree, but I don't see the. I don't see I'll the double check as, it. I'll yeah, I don't. I don't see the story as being fake. I didn't have the time to double check it before I came today. So, so while individual dinosaur era feathers have been found in amber, and evidence of a feathered dinosaur is captured in fossil impression, this is the first time that scientists are able to clearly associate well-preserved feathers with a dinosaur, and in turn again. Uh, gain a better understanding of the evolution and structure of dinosaur feathers. The research, which was led by paleontologist Lida Xing of the China University of Geosciences, was funded in part by the National Geographic Society Expedition Council. The uh, semi-translucent mid-Cretaceous amber sample, roughly the size and shape of a dried apricot, uh, captures one of the earliest moments of differentiation between the feathers of birds of flight and the feathers of dinosaurs. Inside the... Oops. Inside the, the lump of resin is a 1.4-inch appendage covered in delicate feathers described as chestnut brown with a pale or white underside. The CT scans and microscopic analysis of the sample reveal eight uh, P vertebrae from the middle or end of a long, thin tail which uh, that may have been originally made up for more than 25 vertebrae. Now, based on the structure of the tail, researchers believe it belongs to a juvenile colorosaur, or part of a group of theropod dinosaurs that includes everything from Tyrannosaurus to modern birds. But could it fly? The presence of articulated tail vertebrae in the sample enabled researchers to rule out the possibility that the feathers belong to a prehistoric bird. Modern birds and their closest Cretaceous ancestors feature a set of fused tail vertebrae called style that enables tail feathers to move as a single unit. So these feathers were a bit acting more like fur than actual feathers. Well, look at ostriches. They can't fly either, right? So yeah. it's kind of the transition between being able to fly and not being able to fly. So a style is the sort of thing you've seen if you've prepared turkey, says uh, study co-author Ryan McKellar, creator of invertebrate paleontology at Canada's Royal Saskatchewan Museum. The dinosaur feathers feature a poorly defined central shaft, which is called a rachis, and appears to uh, keel uh, to either side of the tail, 
The open, flexible structure of the feathers is uh, more similar to modern ornamental feathers than to flight feathers, which have been well-defined as central shafts, branches, sub-branches, and hooks, and all the stuff. In a report in June of this year of the same research team, Cretaceous-era bird wings preserved in amber reveal feathers remarkably similar to the flight feathers of modern birds. The current study concludes that the entire length of the dinosaur tail was covered in a type of feather seen in the sample. The dinosaur would have been likely been incapable of flight. Rather, such feathers probably have served as a signaling function or played a role in temperature regulation. Fascinating. Yeah, it is. Do they have any renderings of what this particular dinosaur might have looked like? Oh, if you if you look it up, you probably could. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, one of these uh, almost like an oval raptor dinosaur. It looks like a bit like those ostrich dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, walked on two legs and all that. Uh, the Aber sample was uh, is called has been nicknamed Eva in honor of the paleobotanist Eva Colipus, the wife of uh, co-author Philip Curry, who apparently found the uh, the Aber. Um, you know, it's fascinating to see that in the little short amount of time that even I've been alive, our idea of dinosaurs and what they've looked like and how they function has drastically moved forward. Well, you can blame Jurassic Park for a lot of that because they suspected even back in the early 1990s that they had feathers, especially the raptors that you see yeah. in, in there. But honestly, they look so much scarier in Jurassic Park. I mean, you put feathers on them, it just looks kind of silly, right? So that's probably part of it is that they looked scarier without feathers. But even, even if you take, for example, as a child, um, I, I've always been fascinated with dinosaurs. As a child, uh, they used to get these little figurines. Let's take T-Rex. Everybody knows T-Rex, right? The dinosaur stood completely straight up, and the tail would drag on the floor. He would be standing up pretty much like a, like a person. And I think that's essentially that's politics. He was the king of dinosaurs, so he had to walk like a man, right? But now... 20 years after that, the dinosaur is like a T, right? It's like T tottering on top of its legs. The tail acts as a counterweight to the front end. And now, even 10 years after that, now we're talking about T-Rex with a whole bunch of feathers on it. So it might look like a really huge, mean, prehistoric chicken, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And it was a scavenger as opposed to a... Well, they're still predator. debating that. Yeah, that's kind of debated. So, that's But what, the journal was called Current? Yeah, it was called Current. And normally when I read these sort of things from... Well, more reliable sources than the National Geographic. It's usually like the Journal of Nature, the yeah. Journal of Science, the American Association of Paleontology. So no, I know, I'm I know a little that, skeptical about that. I know the National Geographic has <laughs> kind of taken Absolute a bit of a downturn since Herbert Murdoch has yeah, he's it. destroyed it. But, I mean, I don't see how this article would be made up. Really, I mean, there's, there's no reason. This is not a Jesus article either, right? It's not. No, but it's definitely one of those headline clickbait type so of things, we'll, right? We'll, ke- so. we'll keep an eye on that, and if, if we misled you... The we'll soft change. tissue thing is always misled by people because they think that there's actual DNA there, but there's not Well, actually. Tyler, we can always depend on you to, yeah, to get the original, <laughs> get the sources, so stay tuned. I will double we check will follow, Tyler will let us know. I'll triple, we will follow check it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you don't I, think it's going to Leave my not. dinosaur story alone. I hate Rupert Murdoch. He canceled Firefly. Hate him. <laughs> so so do, you think, do you think this dinosaur is going to be on display in the Creationist Museum anytime soon? <laughs> well, no, they'll just, say, they'll just say, oh, look, there's, you know, soft <laughs> tissue that proves they can't be 99 million years old it's six thousand. yeah i yeah okay well it's, it's also not a big sample they said it's the size of a size of a dried apricot you know yeah. a couple of inches you know so it's not a big sample but nonetheless it's an extraordinary find 
It know? is. And it's, it's given us a Maybe. more and more precise idea of to what these animals were like in the far, far past. Sometimes size doesn't matter. Says Kevin's girlfriend. Isn't isn't the other dinosaur that they that they found? Isn't isn't that one Susan? And this the one T-Rex. is T-Rex. Sue, Sue the T-Rex. Susan. Yeah. Yeah. Sue's the the famous There's T-Rex. The yeah. Yeah. Susan. As well. So now we've got we've got two girls. Yeah. You know, Eva, Eva yeah. and, and <laughs> Eva. Susan. Got <laughs> a whole list of stuff. Not that you can really tell what gender they are, but typically these things are like rapidly buried in like a mudslide or something, which yeah. is why soft tissue survives over that long. It's not actual DNA, so yeah. you wouldn't be able to clone it or anything. But and I know a lot of Christians have a hard time with the fossil the fossil record and. And a lot of them will say, well, how come we don't have so many more of these? Well, a fossil is actually a rare thing. Very rare. It's a very rare thing. You need some really good conditions. Especially things that don't have an exoskeleton. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, dinosaurs and us. I mean, if if you don't fall, if you don't die in like a, a river delta where you're quickly buried or submerged or something like that, if you just die in the middle of the forest, your body's just decomposed yeah, and exactly. eaten in mushrooms and everything and it's gone. Right, so, uh, so when you find a fossil, you and we have lots of them, and uh, most of them are like mollusks and exoskeletons, things with outside shells and yeah, so, in stuff like wet, like damp places. Shells and, and they're very, very tough. Well, that's why there's not a lot of Homo, you know, Homo sapiens, Homo erectus, yeah. and that because they're out in dry Africa and I mean, eaten if, by predators. And yeah, you know, it just are, goes bad. So that's what a lot of these creationists will be like, oh, DNA. Not DNA, but soft tissue. They try to think it's DNA. Can't survive 65, 90 million. Really? How do we know that? I mean, we have these things that are buried in a avalanche mudslide, and then all of a sudden we find out, oh, you know, soft tissue can survive that long. Did we have a whole bunch of experiments prior to this that we buried things for 65 million years and there was no soft... No, it's just something we've recently learned. Yeah. There was no rule of thumb prior to this that soft tissue couldn't survive 60... 90 million years how would you even conduct that experiment yeah and it, well it would be it would be relatively unlikely well, but yeah. even if you take a look at some more recent uh, archaeological discoveries like these uh, mummies from uh, bog swamps and stuff like that uh, these people are in excellent excellent condition and they've been buried for a couple of thousand years and in, in it depends how rich the environment is if it's uh, rich in oxygen and stuff like that yeah. prone to help decomposition or not well, and there would have been millions and millions of dinosaurs, so like point zero 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 one percent less than that. Yeah, exactly. actually survived this yeah, type they, of fossilization. Yeah, these discoveries are just great. They really are. They just add add to our knowledge, and it spurs the scientists on to find you know better ways of dating and, and better ways and of always, figuring out. It evolution. always appeals to the kid in you when it comes to dinosaurs because you know it's like the it's like dragons, but they're real. They're real. That's a, that's yeah. the thing about them, right? As soon as you see them, you can't help but be trans transported to a fantasy world. Komodo dragons are real. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be right back with David Fitzgerald. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson from the Legion of Reason Diversion. Join me and my co-hosts, Christine Shelska, Twyla, and Nate Phelps, as we explore issues at the intersection of atheism, humanism, and skepticism. Topics range from alternative medicine to the interference of religion in public policy. We often have special guests to help us understand the topic du jour. Previous guests include biologist Jerry Coyne, ex-Muslim author Ali Rizvi, philosopher Peter Bogosian, and the late physicist Victor Stanger. 
You can watch us on the Legion of Reason YouTube channel or subscribe to the audio version through your favorite podcatcher such as iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to like the Legion of Reason Facebook page. A Canadian, a New Yorker, and a Southern Belle walked into a podcast. And all hell broke loose. Seriously, though, what happens when we three ladies get together? Well, definitely a lot of talking. And accents. Funny accents. Well, I don't have an accent, but my co-hosts sure do. We mix North, South, and the Great White North together for two hours of pure secular discussion. Nothing is off-limits. From goofy religions like Scientology, woo like ghost hunting and alternative medicine, to hardcore history, hermeneutics, sex, and science, we cover it all. What the heck is a hermeneutic? Well, it's not a guy named Herman who sings falsetto, that's for sure. Join Beth, Ashley, and myself, Deborah, every Monday night at 9.30pm Eastern, and we take you beyond the trailer park and bring the conversation to life. Join us live on YouTube and participate in the conversation via the Q&A system, or catch us later on Spreaker, Stitcher, iTunes, and Nobex. Visit www.beyondthetrailerpark.com for links to the show and our upcoming schedule. Bring your wine and sweet tea and settle in for fun facts and free thinking. We happily wear the explicit tag, though, so make sure to wash out your mouth with something tasty before listening. That's live at 9.30pm Eastern on YouTube. Come give us a like and a share, no matter what type of accent you have. Whoever is led to believe that species are mutable will do good service by conscientiously expressing his conviction. For only thus can the load of prejudice by which this subject is overwhelmed be removed. So what you know about natural selection? Go ahead and ask a question and see where the answer gets you. Try and we're back. So we're going to get our friend David Fitzgerald on the line. Let's see if we can talk to David about St. Paul. Okay, well, joining us once again online is our friend David Fitzgerald, an author and probably one of my favorite amateur historian. David, how are you doing today, sir? Great to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us here at Left of the Valley. Uh, I must say you're probably one of my favorite interviews of all time, so... Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, you got a great personality. Oh, yeah, we love we love to have you have a standing invitation to come anytime and talk about anything you want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, guys. So today we want to talk about St. Paul. St. Paul, to me, is that guy that everybody forgets about. You know, and nobody, they always talk about Jesus, they always talk about Matthew, Mark, and John, and all that stuff. Nobody talks about St. Paul, and he had a huge influence on the Bible. David, what are your thoughts on St. Paul? Well, you know, it's funny, the ironic thing about all those people you named, of all of them, he's probably the only one that's actually real, that it really existed. I had no idea! And, um, uh, though I should say maybe he's only half real, because everything we know about Paul, half of that is bullshit made up by the guy who wrote Luke, Luke's Gospel, and the Book of Acts. Uh, so the, 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 the Paul that we love, uh, that's kind of a super guy who does all these miracles... He never existed, but the kind of bitchy, queeny um, <laughs> one from his letters. Was that he a tranny? Did yeah. <laughs> he didn't seem to like women all that much, that's for sure. He 
didn't. He wasn't big on the girls. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> it, it's funny. He says things like, "Oh, it's it's bad for a man to um, waste times on frivolous things like making his wife happy." When he can serve the Lord, why can't all men be like me and completely immune to the temptations of women? <laughs> well, you know they say, "Happy wife, happy life," right? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't say anything like that at all. <laughs> you know, some, some of the conservative Christians might object if you want to change it from Saint Paul to Queen Paul. You think they might never <laughs> just a slight, slight? I love that Queen Paul point Queen for Nancy. Paul, right? <laughs> oh. Was he suffering some sort of shortcomings we're unaware of? Maybe. Well, you know, here's the thing: he does talk about this thorn in his side that that uh, uh, God has given him to keep him humble. And there's <laughs> lots of speculations on what that is. My point and exactly. In my, uh, my sex and violence talk, um, I suggest, and it turns out I'm not the first person to suggest this, that he was a closeted homosexual. It could very well be. Could very well be. We'll never know. Well, he was. Yeah, kind of, he was... certainly not some of the guesses they've had. Like, oh, it's an earache. Oh no, it's epilepsy. It's like, nah, no, no. We're not talking about earache. Penis. <laughs> <laughs> he was an apocalyptic preacher, though, too, wasn't he? So I mean, was he oh, thought God, yeah. Jesus was going to come down any minute now? And that's and it's ca- funny. Yeah, that's kind of the idea says, for not having a wife is the world's going to end anyways. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. There's just no time for that. And um, he, it's funny. He. he repeatedly tells us that Jesus is coming, he never says anything remotely like, Jesus is coming back, or implying that this is a second coming. This is way too many gay jokes. He's coming, he's coming. It's going to be a very serious show, obviously. Uh, <laughs> David, in, in, your, in your humble opinion, I'm just going to take a little slant detour here. Uh, why is it that Christians don't seem to recognize the idea that Jesus was supposed to come back like really, really soon after he was supposedly crucified and supposedly rose to the heavens and all that. He was supposed to come like really within a lifetime. How come Christians can't see that? How come they always think, oh, he'll be back in 2,000 years or so? Well, it's funny. I mean, when they read the letters of Paul and when they read the book of Hebrews, they always read it through this gospel lens that wasn't around during their time. And when you read them kind of on their own, what they're actually saying they're saying nothing like what we think of as Christianity. And there's all these huge holes in the story that just aren't part of his reality. For him, an apostle is someone who could argue that the, the reason Christ had appeared to him. He never says that any of the what we think of as, as Jesus' friends and family have any kind of better cr- uh, criteria than he does. Um, they're just one more person who claims that God appeared to him from heaven. Well, I'd like to point out one of the most annoying things I find is when people try to attack Paul or support Paul and they talk about stuff in Acts. I'm like, you have to differentiate between the two. There's actually this really good um, New Testament university course on YouTube from Yale University where he points out the contradictions between the book of Acts and with Paul, like really small things like... Paul says he went there. Acts said he went there. Well, maybe we should believe Paul, that kind of thing, right? So Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because, yeah, on every point where there's an overlap between Paul and Acts, Acts is, is whitewashing, Acts is changing the story, Acts is not in agreement with Paul at all. Well, yeah, like the whole Damascus thing and going blind, and that's just yeah, the book of Acts, that's funny. right? It's, it's like the most famous you know, conversion story in history, and Paul never says anything remotely like that ever. Paul, uh, Luke gives us three different versions of it, and Paul never mentions it once. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. 
Well, and the other thing I'd like to point out and, and maybe get your opinion on is the uh, scholarly consensus regarding the letters that were misattributed to Paul, like First and Second Timothy and Right. You've got the pastoral letters, which is First yeah. uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, and you've got what's called the Deuteropaulines, which are Ephesians and Second uh, Thessalonians. Um, I'm forgetting the other ones, um, but they are those. Those are more considered that they were written by followers of Paul. Hold on, hold on a second, hold on a second. I, I, I just gotta. You're telling me that the conversion of Paul, the story where he's riding on his horse and he sees the blinding light and he falls off his horse, is actually not from his hand? That is, he never tells us anything remotely like that, just ever. Asked. Holy shit balls. Ever. Holy crap. In fact, he says everything he knows about Jesus comes from uh, Revelation and Scripture, His reading his Scriptures. Holy jeez, that kind of, okay, but because everybody what, always what knows that tells us is that Jesus uh, died and was according to scriptures. Jesus was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and Jesus rose again according to scriptures. That's his. That's his catchphrase for everything he knows about Jesus. Which is like where Richard Carey gets into the whole ascension of Isaiah and Philo and that kind of thing. But um, absolutely, well, one argument I I don't like to see is when my fellow atheists, you know, cite First Timothy as you know Paul being sexist. I think that's a bad argument. Right. He didn't write it, so... Exactly, exactly, yeah. And in fact, he seems to have um, uh, a, a, a much better um, relationship with the women who were the patrons of his churches. Yeah, um, absolutely. I kind of get this picture of, like, uh, you know, one of those uh, TV evangelists. The power of Christ compels you! Who have these rich matrons that support them. He seems to be much more like kind of person. Of course, they have money, right? I'm, yeah. guess, I'm guessing you're not a Bart Ehrman fan, but he did write a book. Oh, po- yes, honestly, no? I am a huge Bart Ehrman. Okay, I wasn't sure. Just, so. on the historicity issue. Yeah, absolutely. But his book Forged was really good and kind of helped yeah, me help me realize why certain things, you know, yeah. weren't, weren't it's written a, by him. Forged, and he has another book called uh, Forgery and Counterforgery. That's I have not read that one. Inconceivable. Forged, that, forged was very academically confusing even though it was written for your average layman it was still pretty in-depth compared to the other books that are you know really good for your average person jesus interrupted yeah, I, that I love forged and but forgery and counterforgery is just a brick of a book it's like 700 some odd pages of dense dense text totally worth reading if you really get into that topic <laughs> or if you're a bit smarter than i anyway <laughs> that's not hard to do no i'm just kidding <laughs> but, yeah, okay I'm, I'm glad you're learning something here kevin because that's one that those are the <laughs> Those are the arguments I see atheists using all the time is they don't differentiate between Paul and Acts and they don't understand about the letters from Paul that are in dispute and that sort of thing. And they're, just, they're just bad arguments. And the other thing you can say about anything that you know from Paul is even his letters that aren't in dispute, we know that even his genuine letters contain interpolations and changes and that many of them were probably, if not all of them, were probably mock-ups of several letters and mashed together. Well, so, so which of his letters would you call are in, in dispute? I have them on uh, my phone somewhere. Indisputable or in dispute? In dispute. Which one do you think are not really Paul's writing? Well, it's not It's not my opinion, but um, there's the Deuteropaulines and the... the um, pastoral letters and so those are those are six out of the 13 letters and well, we don't have uh, any idea who really wrote those that those are the ones that he did not write 
And we don't have any idea who wrote those. The so. most no. famous author of all time. What, St. Paul? Anonymous. 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 <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it's like some sexist guy pretending to be Paul so he can kind of interject his own belief system in, into it. That's so. exactly right. Well, well, how, did we exactly. De- how did we determine that? Was it because of the style of yeah, writing? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's because of, uh, yeah, it, that's the big thing is, is there's all these different um, criteria that they can <laughs> examine. And it's not just for Paul. It's for any kind of writing to determine if something's a forgery or not. There's all these different tests they can use, like the syntax they use, the vocabulary they use. But um, we don't look it, at mental illness as being a probability, a multi-personality disorder. Well, you know, I think there's lots of people who kind of tend towards those kind of uh, explanations for Paul to explain things like, oh, well, this Damascus thing was clearly an epileptic seizure, you know, and... You know, I can see why there's the the, the tendency to um, to equate some kind of mental illness with Paul because hypographia, you know, the hypographia of the constant urge to write is is a, a symptom. There's all kinds of ways you can pathologize certain aspects of, of Paul's writings, but uh, you know, the part of the problem with that is some of those things aren't from Paul. Yeah, and it's the Book of Acts, anyway. You, so who cares? You can only go so far with some of these arguments. You know, they're not. They're circumstantial. They're not, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You can't really prove anything from them. They're not demonstrable. Is it, is it possible that we have letters from Paul when he was like, kind of like sober and other letters of Paul when he was kind of horny or something? Or, <laughs> you know? it, it, it's interesting with the book of Revelation, they actually did like a hundred different tests to compare it to the uh, gospel of John. And, uh-huh. and I've noticed it with my own writing. I write in a very specific way. I put commas in specific places, and I use and a lot, like that sort of thing. And that's the kind of thing they compared between the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John. And they've determined with baby, basically a 99% certainty that the person who wrote Revelation absolutely did not write the Gospel of John because of the writing style. And that's because bi- of the use of the Oxford comma? Well, no, like <laughs> a whole bunch of different things like that, right? So that's basically what they did with Paul as well is that, I mean, some of the letters obviously can contradict the ones that aren't in dispute mm, and right. the style of writing is just completely different. You can actually tell. Couldn't you just have a really absolutely. bad writing day? And sometimes, sometimes they don't even agree on the same theology. Yeah, exactly. Whether that's just him changing his mind over time or that that's a different person altogether. Um, oh, the other thing about interesting about John and Revelation is it also is very clear that the author of the epistles of John are not the same as either of those guys who wrote the gospel or of uh, yeah, exactly. Revelation. Now, but, uh, let me get back real super fast to the, the Paul's letters real fast. I'm going to make them an awful account of you. Because you're asking which ones are in dispute. Um, those Deuteropaulines is Second Thessalonians, Ephesians, and Colossians. Those are believed to have been written by later followers of Paul. Mm. And the other ones are the pastorals. Those are clearly from a different generation of, uh, of Christians, and those are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Mm. So those are the six. Mm-hmm. And again, even the seven that aren't in dispute are clearly have been tampered with and edited to and yeah. redacted. And the the Christian we had on the show last week, um, as do many Christians, they don't like when I point out that, okay, sure, you can claim Paul wrote this in the year 50-something, but what's the oldest fragment or copy we have from Paul? And oh, my yeah. current understanding is around the year 190, 200. I believe it's P48. Uh, you could be right. I don't know off the top of my hand, but I do know that we have no surviving Christian writings of any kind 
yeah. from the first century. Yeah, we're talking Everything 150 years. Written originally in the first century, go back to the second century, the very earliest. Uh, 150 years, and I mean, yeah. they didn't have the printing press, so one person had to copy the copy of the copy of the copy. Like, you're probably yeah. getting dozens, at least dozens of copies in between oh, the year least. 50 and, and, one, funny and 200. Is some, some of our earliest Christian writings, uh, our very earliest Christian writings, aren't ones that made it into the gospel, or in, into the Bible itself. Um, they're from gospels that we don't recognize which ones like philip and stuff or uh no well th- th- that one but i'm actually specifically thinking of one called the egerton gospel which is the earliest uh new testament uh papyrus fragment that we have it used to be con- thought that p52 this yeah, that's uh, what I too. john was the oldest and it turns out nope that's it's about 100 years older than they thought it was oh this is news to me can you expand on that because my understanding is p52 is where um, jesus is talking to Pilate about you know what is truth and they've dated it to around 125 uh, CE. It's, it's, a, it's a little chunk of, uh, of, of John 18, I believe, like six verses from that. Yeah, it's like the size of a credit card. And it, when I wrote Nailed, I was, I was under the impression it was also the oldest Testament fragment. And I write that in Nailed, that it is. And it turns out that, that 125 AD is actually the lowest end of about a 75-year window. So... Christians were playing the game they always do, and it's like, oh, it's from 125 to 175? Oh, it must be 125. And oh, then they repeat that ad nauseum until you hear them treating it as if 125, we know it's at least that young. You know, it's like, no, 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 okay. you're way off. It was Bart Ehrman that said it was between 100 and 150, and the reason you do that is because you can tell based on the style of the person who wrote it, their student is going to learn to be similar to their style of writing, so you give a 50-year gap. Right. Actually, Vredar did a great post on this uh, a year or so ago, and it turns out that the papyri- the, pa- <laughs> the experts on the fragment itself, they've never claimed that it was as young as 125. That was something the theologians picked up on and ran with. What's the but date on the other one? It could be as, as early as the beginning of the 3rd century. So, you know. What's the date uh, on the other one, then? The Eggman? I can't pronounce what you said. Yeah. We're talking about New Testament fragments. Yeah, I, I was wanting the date on the Egerton fragment. Uh, I off the top of my head, I don't know it, but I know it's early second century. Oh, okay. Do you know what it covers with the subject matter? Because I was looking at um, nothing it's some supernatural. Miracle, if I remember correctly, it's some miracle that takes place on the banks of the Jordan, and some prophecy about grapes that n- none of it appears in any of our other gospels. Okay, probably, I'll have to look that up. It's probably the seventy-two virgins grapes of, uh, of Islam. <laughs> <laughs> David, um, you know, I think I, we need to talk quickly about establishing the lifespan of Paul, because I think a lot of people are confused as to when the man actually lived in relation to uh, J.C., the carpenter. Right. Tecton. Right. So the, these these guys, from my understanding, live approximately at the same time, right? Assuming that right. Jesus actually ever was a character. Exactly, and that's that's kind of the, the, the default, or the, the caveat, is that a lot of times he's linked to... What, well, Jesus was alive during this time, so if he says this happened then, it must have been this. And so there's all this kind of going out on the limb that is Jesus, and it's like, well, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. We're more certain about when he was writing and when he died, more or less, the time he died, if not the place and where. Um, we don't know roughly when he was born. We don't. We know when, very roughly. Very roughly. We don't really know how old he was. You know when he was doing his writing, or and when he died, and we don't have anything about his early life, so it's tough to pin down exactly 
So all, all we really have to introduce Paul is the so-called story in Acts about his conversion, and then from then on it goes on. Well, and and these, this is the kind of thing that hinders any kind of being able to be certain about anything in the New Testament, really. You have to kind and of again, leave Acts he's, he's one of the better established guys. I'd like, we know there was a guy named Paul. We don't know that about Matthew, Jesus, you know, Judas, Paul, you know, <laughs> Joseph and Mary, all those guys. Uh, for the most part, they seem to be fictional characters. In fact, the ones you can really only say existed were the Jerusalem Pillars, the leader of the Jerusalem Church, was, who was James and um, Kephas, or Peter. And they, those may have been two different people, too. You know, we're not 100% sure that they're not the same person, that, that, that they are the same person, rather. Mm. And James. Uh, so those people we can say were real people, but they're not quite the same people as we've seen in the Gospels. The Gospels took these names of people from Paul's letters and turned them into characters in the Gospels. Okay. So so were, were Paul's writings essentially older than the gospel if we if we if we go by mark being ad 70 and plus yes so yes they were yeah paul's like 50 absolutely his all of his stuff was written around the 50s 50s and maybe the early 60s and he appears to have died around the mid 60s um the christian tradition says that he was uh, beheaded by nero in rome (laughs) but we know that can't be true because we have our earliest source is from the Bishop of Rome, who said that he died in Spain. Houston, we have a problem. And they have an account of him leaving Rome for Spain. If the Bishop of Rome doesn't know that Paul died in, in Rome, we can be pretty sure that yeah. he did not die in Rome. It's a pretty safe Wherever he did die. Yeah. Well, it's like that with Peter, too, right? Isn't it not actually in the Bible that says he was crucified upside down? That's kind of like a Catholic Well, there is, there is kind of a tacked-on line at the end of... Um, uh, is it the Gospel of John, I think? Um, the most ridiculous Gospel out of all of them. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> but it, one of the, it, it's kind of a, a, a footnote at the end of one of the other uh, New Testament books that mentions that Peter... It, it makes an allusion to Peter's death. We really don't have any, any accounts of his death that are, have any kind of historical validity. They're all stories that came later. Okay. I, I, I came up with a decent argument, I think, anyways, regarding mythicism, and it's probably come up from many other people i'm sure because every time i come up with a good idea i look it up and 20 people came up with it a hundred years ago pain oh i hate that uh but so paul was a zealous jew before his conversion right well yes no yes though we don't know if he was really a member of the sanhedrin as he you know but yes but, but but we can say he was a zealous jew sure okay so wouldn't he have been present during Passover? I mean, people came from all over the place. Wouldn't he have been there when Jesus was crucified, or no? I'm sorry, say the whole thing again. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Wouldn't Paul have been present during the crucifixion? Like, wouldn't he have gone to Jerusalem to be there for Passover? I don't understand why he wasn't there. That's that's not an unreasonable assumption, I would think. There is is a rumor that's been surfacing lately that people are starting to say that Paul could have been one of the Pharisees that condemned Jesus. Yeah, yeah. 
sounds like, Dan, that that sounds like Dan Brown kind of crap, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe it is. <laughs> exactly. Well, he's responsible for helping kill Jesus, and then he just, you know, well, fails was, to mention that. Well, that, yeah. Well, that was before his conversion. Right? Well, no, but he talks about yeah, per, per, Well, that makes his conversion all the more miraculous. Exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah. he, he does. He does talk about having, you know, persecuted Christians. I believe it's in First oh, Galatians. In First yeah, Galatians. So you think he would have been like, oh, by the way, I kind of contributed yeah. to killing Jesus. So. Well, I don't think. I don't think if if, if you. <laughs> If you're trying to, he also mentions that he had family, or at least what he calls kinsmen, who were in Christ before him. So he may have actually had blood relatives who were Christians before he was. Hmm. Which, which is one of the arguments that people use against, you know, Paul having just completely fabricated the whole thing. the The Richard Carrier argument is still a little bit confusing to me. I don't understand exactly how he's saying the whole thing began, but. This this morning, I was talking to a, a historian friend of mine, who his argument is that Richard Carrier's position just doesn't work because, for why is Paul trying to uh, put himself on equal footing with Peter and James when you know all of the Jesus information was you know from Revelation according to Richard Carrier, so if Jesus wasn't a real person, why is Paul you know arguing with James and Peter? Why are they a higher rank than him? And the obvious reason, according to my friend, is that, you know, they actually knew Jesus in the flesh. Well, here's the thing, though. Paul, when he's arguing with these guys, he doesn't say he doesn't defend himself because he feels inferior to them because of their of their stance. He says, I don't even know who these guys think they are. I don't think they're even real Christians. They bring in false believers, you know, and he's arguing with them completely uh, just all throughout his actual letter in Galatians, he never, even when there's that verse that says, I saw none except the brother of the Lord, James, the next couple verses after that, he's saying, yeah, these guys are nobodies. I don't even think they're real Christians. It's like, how do you say that about somebody you're trying to defend yourself on? He's never, there's never any sense of of self-doubt about that. He's, he. Uh, compares himself to super apostles and says, "Well, they talk better than I do. They they're not as they, you know. Their voice sounds nicer. They're they're more polished than I am." He never says anything about, "And they knew Jesus, but I knew Jesus because Jesus talked to me." He never says like anything the, remotely like that at all. It's like the no true Scotsman's fallacy right there from the beginning, right? They're not true Christians. I am. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. And he says, "Oh yeah, if somebody else tells you another gospel or another Jesus, even if it's an angel, don't believe them. Believe what we tell you." Yeah, that's interesting. Do you subscribe a hundred percent to basically the Richard Carrier model, or? Well, I mean, I want to be clear what we're talking about there, but yeah, absolutely. I don't know um, what the origin but, would be, so that's that's where I'm confused. As I obviously Paul didn't just invent it from scratch, so right. My idea, my I, not first Christian by any stretch. So yeah, my idea um, here let was let me mention that, that because, uh, and this is a good time to mention that I've written a follow up book to Nailed oh, to answer questions like that. Oh, okay, because I was I just. I understand the Christian version of things, you know, all the miraculous crap is true and all that. And then the Bart Ehrman somewhat view regarding, you know, he was crucified and his disciples were disappointed, so they just made up a bunch of stuff. Or I think he was talking about dreams and hallucinations. <laughs> and right. I, I think and it's, it's interesting to me, even, even not just Bart, but even the, the historians out there who are kind of on the fence about whether Jesus exists or not, and the ones who are staunchly historicist, they all seem to agree that Christianity began not with a real Jesus, not with his death, but with people preaching that he had come back from the dead. 
Well, and I think where I disagree with Bart is I, I think he believes that there was indeed a tomb. At least that's what I've been informed of, and I don't believe You ever that. know that from Paul? Yeah, I don't believe there ever was a tomb, so. Right. Paul, for some reason, Paul doesn't mention the tomb ever. Right. And in fact, the way he describes, and Rick talks about this in um, The Empty Tomb, the book The Empty Tomb, the spiritual resurrection of Christ, he believed, if he believed that Jesus was on earth at all, um, like there's some there's some ways that some uh, things he say could be interpreted. Think well that Jesus was this stealth Messiah who'd shown up, you know, maybe 50 years before and no one knew about it, um, and and because he didn't want the demons to know about it. You know, this is all hush hush. Mm. Um, so nobody was supposed to know about it until he actually uh, was crucified and raised from the dead. It was all supposed to be a top secret operation, much like. Ascension of Isaiah, exactly like Ascension of Isaiah. And it was supposed exactly to... like the book of Hebrews, actually, when you read Hebrews, and they're talking about a Jesus who does all this in heaven and not on earth. That's another book that uh, Paul never wrote, just by the way, Kevin. Absolutely, yeah. That's interesting. Jesus, super spy man, super secret agent. Well, <laughs> I, th- I, uh, yeah. I think I watched a de- I watched um, Richard Carrier debating Zeba Crook. That's probably not how you pronounce his name, but... He's a, an atheist scholar who was arguing for the her historicity. So I kind of got the basic idea from Richard Carrier. And my understanding was that some people, whether it was James or Peter or whatever, you know, they looked through the, these Jewish scriptures like Isaiah and that sort of thing. And even Philo and kind of came up with this celestial Jesus where Jesus yep. in outer space. I'd prefer to say the sky. Outer space just makes yeah, it Yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, yes, they are talking about a Jesus in outer space, but I have the same reservation. They're talking about layers of heaven. And yeah, he was sky. in this layer of heaven, that layer of heaven. Yeah, when you say outer space, it automatically there's a woo-woo factor that comes so like in. Ancient aliens or some shit, right? So, <laughs> exactly. but, but basically, that's why I cringe a little bit too. But essentially, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying this to, all took place in the heavenly realm. And it was us. to trick trick the devil into crucifying yeah. him in order to atone for humanity. So that exactly. actually, I mean, that's pretty stupid. But that makes a lot more sense than you know. I'd love to forgive these human beings, but first yeah. I'm going to have to become a human, get tortured, die, and then I can forgive them. Mm. Because yeah. it's between, it's not between himself and himself. It's between him and Satan. So that does make <laughs> more sense to me. Also, yeah. uh, and, and you see the evolution of these ideas too. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Kevin. But no, of you not. see, with the ascension of Isaiah, with Philo, with the Book of Hebrews, you see them th- them coming up with these notions and then kind of perfecting it. And then it morphing into what we know as Christianity. Mm. I, I just think that you know, from from the layman's perspective, you see some of, some of the symbolism. For example, Jesus after he's supposedly res- resurrected, he's got this uh, moment where he he's ascending to heaven, you know, floating up towards the sky. You know, right there, that that image works very well if you actually think that there is a firmament and Jesus is going to go through the firmament and into yep. heaven. But Absolutely. if you understand, there is no such thing. There is no reason for Jesus to climb up towards the sky. Even if yep. he lived outside of dimension of time, shouldn't he just disintegrate no, or he, disappear? No, no, you're you're confused. He went to planet Kolob. Oh, that's it, Kolob. <laughs> what was I thinking? Of course, Kolob's up there. <laughs> so, and you know what's funny about that is that whole ascension basically boils down to one guy, the author of Luke. He's the only one that gives us that that whole that incident at all. He's also the one who wrote Acts, right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, great. 
So you get even less credibility. My favorite thing to point out is when you read the story of Jesus being crucified in the Gospel of Mark. He is to- Jesus is totally pissed. He's like, God, why have you forsaken me? Like, yeah. why are you doing this to me? And then you read Luke, and Jesus is like, This is the plan. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna die. It's gonna be all good. Like, this is the plan from the beginning. I'm like. And by the time you read, John, they read the Gospel of John, he's like, yeah, bring it. Bring, it. <laughs> bring some bigger nails. You guys are pushing <laughs> <laughs> So going back to St. Paul, David, um, that, uh, that we know he has a tendency to argue with you know, Peter and James, but did he actually ever meet them? Do we know? Uh, well, oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it, it seems clear that he met them, but to him, they're just the leaders of the Jerusalem church. He never says... That, I mean, him... He never uses the word disciples full on stop in any context. For him, apostles aren't people who are friends and family of Jesus. They're people who, like him, had a vision or had a revelation or read the scriptures and went, aha, and uh, could say that Jesus talked to them from heaven. Okay. Oh, perfect. Like, like Moroni with. Uh, Very like. Yeah, Very. And, and Gabriel with uh, oh, Islam. Wow. And, Moroni was the guy who made the submarine, right? Yeah, that's the one. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and talk to Joseph. Just say one too. thing real fast. When I wrote Nailed, Nailed was all about how the top ten ways that the official Christian story just failed the reality test. But as soon as I wrote it, it became very clear that I didn't really talk about where I think that Christianity did come from. And that's what the new book, uh, Jesus Mything in Action, talks about. It talks about why more biblical historians aren't on board with the theory and the and how more than we think are on board with it, are on board with it. Um, it talks about our sources for Jesus, because basically, if you're going to say that Jesus was anything, did anything, or said anything, you need to first ask, what's our sources for that? And so I examine those. And then the last part of the book is uh, what I'm calling the Gospel According to H.G. Wells. And if we had a time machine and could see how Christianity evolved, this is what that book does. It takes us on a little time travel trip through the evolution of Christianity. So for a guy who's never actually met Jesus, and, you know, uh, he seems to, Paul seems to have a very large influence on what got into the Bible. Yeah, in fact, it's really weird when you think about for the first hundred years or so, at least the first 60 years, he's the only Christian we hear about, even though we know there are all these other uh, preachers preaching around, and we've got the whole, all the Jerusalem church leaders. Uh, we have all these people who should have been, you know, you know, Jesus' disciples, they should have had something uh, written that we would have held on to. But we don't have anything like that. We don't even have any mundane writings like church records or, you know, any kind of traditions of what happened to the disciples after the story ends in the Gospels. I, we don't I, even have the Gospels, of course. I, I get the impression that uh, Paul was a bit of a nag, you know. He seems to, he's oh. always like wagging his finger and... I bet you he got chased out of a lot of a lot of places. <laughs> he sounds like he really was kind of unlikable in a lot of ways, and he's constantly saying things like, "I swear I'm not lying. I am not lying to you." No, and of course not. <laughs> which always he's always makes getting me into it with other skeptic. Christians. Yeah, but wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> to tell you the truth, 
Yeah. Buy now. Buy now. Buy my story now, and you'll get an autographed <laughs> copy. You know, of Jesus himself. Well, and I think he did so well because he was inviting in the Gentiles too, right? So it wasn't. Oh, sure. Keeping to that's, this little that's, group. That was his claim to fame. Is that he said, "Yeah, circumcision. Nah, you don't have to do that." Well, mm-hmm. yeah. If somebody says, "Join my group," and you have to cut a piece of your dick off, and then somebody else says, "No, you don't have to," I'm gonna go with the guy that says, "I don't <laughs> have to cut off a piece of it." And, and that's and exactly. I need what all the things I can get. <laughs> yeah, the least amount of restrictions possible, and I would, exactly. I would go with that. So. And then yeah. we I mean, revert back there's... to my original comments on Paul. Yeah, <laughs> maybe <laughs> Paul uh, had an issue. <laughs> That's bad. Fire the moil! Fire the moil! <laughs> oh. Has anybody here heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Oh yes, he oh, just sure. cuts Paul right out, eh? Just completely gets rid of him. Yeah. He's not even in there at all. He just got rid of them all together. Hated them. Oh, that's funny. I mean, he was a deist, but he still got rid of Paul altogether. I think he was kind of using... Oh, funny. Yeah, I think he was kind of using the Bart Ehrman version yeah. of Jesus, if that's what you want to call it, from a deist yeah. perspective. But he, he hated Paul. And you know what? It's probably because he didn't know about the uh, letters that are in dispute, the six letters that are in dispute. That's probably a big well, that- part of it. Yeah, that's probably so. Yeah, Jefferson probably, did, so. probably didn't know at the time, right? Well, 250 years ago, yeah. Exactly. On top of that, right? Okay, well, thank you so much for your time, David. You've been a great guest as usual. Uh, the, time, the mic is all yours, my friend. If you need to plug anything, what are you, what are you up to? Let us know. I want to let our listeners know what David Fitzgerald is up to. I, as we speak, the new book is it at the formatters, and I'm hoping it'll come out any minute now. I'll, um, I, if everything goes right, between my wife and I, we will have six books finished this year. Wow! So we're still working on the very last book. It's a science fiction trilogy. Um, but as far as your readers are concerned, probably the one they're most interested in is going to be Jesus Mything in Action, which is a three-part book. It was supposed to be one book until we realized it's 900 pages long. So now it's three <laughs> books. And they're all coming out very, very, very soon. And, and I- I'll be and I highly, I highly recommend your previous book, Nailed. is probably one of my favorite books because you know I'm, I'm my brain is not powerful enough to tap something like Richard Carrier. But then uh, your your book was just a great introduction for the layperson, and I really, really love it. And I highly, highly recommend it. Just call it Richard Carrier, dumbed down for Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what I do best. Honestly, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Do you do you have any audio books? Uh, I do. In fact, all my books that are out are also in audio. So the Mormons nailed, and um, Jesus Mything in Action will be out in audio. Do you read them well. yourself? Sorry. Do you read them yourself? I didn't read the Mormons, but yeah, I'm, I'm going forward. I'm going to be reading all of them. Okay. Nailed, yeah, read, and uh, and Mything in Action. I'll read. You're going to be doing that with David Smalley, I'm assuming. Yes, yeah. almost certainly. That's why I like Richard Dawkins' books is because he narrates them himself. And then I read Bart Ehrman's books, and he doesn't narrate them himself, and it oh, just irritates me every single time. Yeah, yeah, that's a shame because he's got a great voice. I'm yeah, like, absolutely. But he's he's a busy guy. He, I don't, he probably doesn't have time to do it because it is a painstaking operation to to read a book. <laughs> yeah. My wife can do that's, it in no time. That's it's why her. Christians he, never read the Bible. Eh? It's just such a pain in <laughs> the ass to read the book. <laughs> David, are you going to be able to send us a link to, for your new book so we can put it on the uh, notes of the show? I, I will do. Um, I, right now, there is no notes to be had. There's no links to be had. Just uh, If you can find me on Facebook, follow me on Facebook. That's probably your best bet to get any kind of updates. Okay, for now. perfect. Thank you so much, David. It's always a pleasure having you. Feel free to come back whenever you want. We just love you, man. 
Thanks, guys. Right back at you. Excellent. Yeah, no, it was great having you. You warmed up a, a really cold day, so thanks, <laughs> thanks for the great education and conversation, and, and looking forward to having you back anytime. Now go play Thank in the rain. So Thank you so much. Can't wait. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Bye. And that was our friend David Fitzgerald. Great interview. Tyler, you and him went at it. It was really good, really good radio. Proud of you, buddy. The, the, the great thing about David Fitzgerald is he's talking to him is like sitting around the table with a cup of coffee. He is so down to earth. He's so and great. so conversational. Just love the man. He's just great. Can't wait for the new book to come out. Yeah. And if you guys were wondering, that music that we came back in with uh, just before David came in, that was our old friend Bala Brickman. Remember oh, the rapper yeah. we interviewed? That yeah, was one yeah. of his songs. Exactly. A song that's uh, it's called Evolution. That was a, a good rapper. We should almost bring him back. We had a great time with that guy. Okay, any any final thoughts on uh, Mr. Fitzgerald there before we conclude our show? No, I just thought the conversation between he and Tyler was fascinating. I mean, getting down to the the nitty-gritty of who Paul really was. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's a great conversation. Even I learned, so. Yeah, so I learned I, a lot of things yeah. today. Learn about uh, St. Paul and learn about pigeons and boobs. And, <laughs> you know, what a great show. What a I great know. show we have. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today, guys. You can follow us on leftatthevalley.com. You can send us an email at leftatvalley at outlook.com. Let us know what you think. If you want to send us some hate mail, send it to Nancy. At and send it, by car- but send it by carrier by pigeon. By carrier pigeon with a bra. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up next week, we'll have our almost final show of the year. We'll have our Christmas special. We're just going to make it nice and light. We're just going to be talking about different Santas around the world and different little traditions, you know, nice and light, what Christmas means to us. And just because you're an atheist doesn't mean you can't have a good time. You can't be a Grinch necessarily. And after that, we'll have our top 10 shows of the best of Left of the Valley for 2016. In the new year, on the 14th, we'll have we'll be talking to Jenny Rustemeyer and Grant Baldwin about food waste. These guys have made two movies about going green, and they're a really, really nice, sweet couple. I've shown one of their films before. We're going to have a blast with that. And we'll also have legendary anchor at CKNW down here in the, in the Fraser Valley, uh, John McComb. He'll be talking to us about depression. The man has suffered from depression himself. He's got some great insight uh, about the subject, and he's even uh, won a prize about his reporting on that. He was quite straightforward. Looking forward yeah, to that. Yeah, that's going to be a great, great show. You can send us uh, your uh, suggestions, anything you want to talk about. We're more than open to listening uh, to our audience about whatever subject they have. Anything else you guys want to talk about? That's no, it? that sort of wraps it up. All right. Guys, thank you so much. Until next time. Rest in my body, you can bet your last dollar. I'll be working hard fighting this problem. Religion is a disease. It comes from culture. Only true on a regional scale. Science is universal. Were you to say that Horace isn't real, but Jesus is. Or Zeus, Thor, Mithra, Vishnu, you don't believe in them. I think the reason is apparent. You do what you're told and believe in the God assigned by your parents. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist, 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 now let me take a mean to sound so hateful, but I swear to God, pun intended, I find it disgraceful that thousands of children are raped by priests and since they're holy men.
get away scot-free And the Pope does his very best to keep it on the hush Don't wanna affect business, he loves money too much We know that they love the kids, but how the fuck can we protect them While they planning to molest them, we teaching them to respect them the system is broke down, working backwards in the only action of tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them The parties of God's hands are bloodstained Millions of murders by believers And they're all in God's name And let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful That many atheists are told to be quiet You're not alone, speak your mind, time to let it be known I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims That's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist, atheist, atheist I'm an atheist, atheist, atheist